to Campfire Fireside Chats. This show is created for adult audiences only. Our show notes include content warnings and other helpful information. We strongly recommend taking a moment to assess the situation before continuing. Let's begin. Welcome, campers, to this week's Fireside Chat. I'll be honest, I'm extremely excited to release this interview. I am, in fact, so eager for you to hear it that I'm just going to throw the announcements to the end of the episode. Quickly, I'll just say that you should definitely go look us up on Patreon. We're doing some very fun stuff over there, and it helps keep the lights on. So today's guest is a dear, dear friend of mine. To say that that friendship with him has been invaluable since starting the show would be a tremendous understatement. We have had some incredible talks over the last year, and this one is right at the top of the list. You know him as the creator and host of Tracing Owls and Darwin's Deviations. I know him as my friend, Vuk. Enjoy. All right. Vuk. And I am going to call you that. Okay. <laughs> because I think that like the, the, the ideas that you were exploring while playing the character Darwin... Okay. I feel like have grown tremendously since you played the character Darwin. Yeah, certainly, because uh, obviously I was um, appropriating <laughs> the name of a <laughs> famed biologist. Right. Now, uh, in what we're planning to do with this episode, I'm going to appropriate a whole hypothesis um, conducted by another biologist. <laughs> so what I do is appropriate biology and, and twist it and morph it into paranormal nonsense that I think the biological community is very pleased with me doing. <laughs> no, I I love it. I mean, that's where some of the most, you know, the most important insights into humanity have ever been made though, is where you take, you know, a concept from another from another field sometimes and you realize that those same concepts can be applied in a completely different way. Yeah, right? that, that's so. I, before we were recording, I was thinking, okay, what are we going to talk about? How are we going to open that? That leads me to what I was planning to talk about. So, you're a historian, and sure. I'm a biologist. I mean, can I call myself a biologist if I'm not working actively in the field? But I have a biological degree and a background, as we already established. Now, both of us are not experiencers. Our interest in the paranormal is purely academic. Yeah. And I bet that most of your worldview is uh, shaped through history and through, through your historical education. You are an academic. Yes. So am I. I mean, I was, but that stays with you <laughs> your whole life. Yeah. Yes, so it does. Biology was a huge thing in my life. And I dedicated a large portion of my life to biology and to studying it. And I view the world through the lens of biology. And constantly throughout my life, I come upon situations where I'm thinking to myself, yeah, there's this biological concept I can use to perfectly explain that. You know? Yeah. Where I read a book, I read some fiction book that has nothing to do with biology and how the characters interact and what they're doing and I'm thinking oh this biological hypothesis can explain everything here yeah <laughs> uh, uh, probably in history you, you, there's a lot of stuff you can implement absolutely yeah so uh, we both approached 
this topic from a different perspective, though it's a very biological topic. Uh, I'm interested, how how did you learn of the Gaia theory? Yeah, which, for the audience, that's what we're mostly going to be talking about today, is the Gaia hypothesis. Yeah, and I, I'm putting... <laughs> I'm putting him on the spot. So how, how did you, Jordan, ever stumble upon this? Okay, so... Because you're, you're not a biologist. No, I'm most certainly not a biologist. Um, how I came upon this concept was sort of through... I was influenced a lot growing up by, like, mysticism and, like, Western Buddhism. And... Or you so, mean theosophy. <laughs> yeah, but essentially, yeah the blending of mysticism and buddhism so i while you learned this from um what's his name the guy lovelock who yeah, wrote the James book lovelock. right uh, yeah, actually lovelock. i didn't learn through him like i uh, i come to conclusions on my own independently and then right. i realize people have have written about these things like for your audience every, uh, m- many of them know what I'm like on social media and that I promote Kiel and Valet and stuff like that sure. but to be honest I never read a, an entire book from each any of them you know yeah it's mostly I come to these conclusions and then I find out wow these people have written about this I'm not so smart and I'm not so mean <laughs> Yeah, it's you have an idea and then you realize, oh, there are people who have devoted like decades of their life to exploring this idea. Yeah, and that I, had. I mean, it's the same ideas from different perspectives. Like how I ca- came to these ideas, I studied biology from every angle. Like yesterday, right. I was making fun of you for saying that a potato is a root when it's certainly a tuber, yeah, which is of course. a modified stem. I know that because I studied in college courses and you know plant yeah. anatomy and plant physiology and morphology whereas i haven't studied botany since i was about 16 years old yeah so, so yeah. i i studied you know how science works it it uh, compartmentalizes everything and puts it into boxes so i studied yeah. every every compartmentalized box every aspect of biology independently but when you finish college and start teaching students biology, you find shortcuts how how to better um, convey the message to the student and how to make them uh, find patterns. You know that's the best yeah. way to learn. And the more patterns you establish, the more you unify all this compartmentalized knowledge and come to these conclusions. Right. You start to see all the boxes at once. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or at least large groups of them all at once. Um, and the guy hypothesis is kind of like seeing all the boxes at once, right? It's the the concept of like um, the earth itself being this massive organism, mm-hmm. right? But while you came at it from there, I learned that I learned about this com- this concept from from like thinkers like Ramdas and like Jack Pornfield. And it was very much like the woo woo version of this concept. So it's the Ak- Akashic Records stuff. Well, essentially. Not not even and that not... far. It's okay. I learned I learned about it alongside concepts like impermanence and karma and like the four noble truths and like it's just the concept of 
that we're that everyone and everything on the earth are all part of the same the same entity yeah so that that's what uh, I, I've recently been on six degrees of John Keel and mm-hmm. Barbara the host of that show has told me like she is an animist and a monist I, I was not aware of the term monism before but it's essentially the philosophical thought that everything is one yeah. that there is only one yep that's and that's exactly that's how I that. learned about it yeah um, you know and I I've believed that for years now um, on some level and you know you often see it you know you might see it on a bumper sticker on a Tesla or something right like we're all one and it's like it's kind of become this meme idea that goes along with the like flighty sort of western spiritualism um, but it's something that it's kind of like it, it really influenced the way that I live my life like I even have grown I've as my children have grown up you know I've explained to them you know that you help other people that it's like a source for compassion for other people like you should think of them as like you know if your hand is on a burner on a stove you don't you know you help your hand you pull your hand back right you don't say like well that lazy hand should get a job and help itself <laughs> yeah you know what i mean um so it it's really influenced the way the way that i live my life but that's how i came to it was through through the woo um, which is very different from the way you you came to it, right? Because you, you came to yes. it very biologically, and, and yeah, I I came to it biologically from the aspect of ecology, evolutionary biology, and essentially an anatomy and morphology. Because James Lovelock, the scientist who proposed the Gaia hypothesis in the seventies via his book uh, Gaia. A new look at life on Earth. Um, he was, I think, a chemist, but let's say environmental scientist. He worked for NASA at that time when he was uh, conceptualizing this idea, and uh, he was working for NASA because they were sending, you know, rovers to Mars and stuff like that. So, uh, obviously, if you're sending rovers to Mars, you need to find a way to detect if there's life on Mars. You're not going to look for living organisms, right. but you're rather going to look for signs of living organisms, traces. And the traces yeah. are, let's say, gases that only exist where organisms exist. Like, yeah. say, methane, you know? So he, as an environmental biologist, came to the idea like, hey, why wouldn't we um, track if there is a presence of methane or or some other chemical that only exists where life exists right and when he started thinking about it like uh, how the atmosphere of earth is structured and how it is kept constantly in these same parameters like oxygen levels are always 21 percent how right why doesn't it ever go beyond that like even if it went beyond a few percent uh, there would be wildfires throughout the whole earth yeah. and everything w- w- would burn down so what's regulating this 
Something needs to be regulating it. So he approaches from the perspective of a chemist and an environmental scientist. And what he proposed is that all life on Earth interacts with the non-living components of the Earth to create a superorganism that is called planet Earth, and he called it Gaia uh, per the uh, primordial personification in Greek mythology of Gaia being, you know, Mother Earth. Right. Um, he proposed that the planet is a superorganism composed of every single living thing on this planet, but integrated with the non-living material objective reality of it. So how it works is that living beings, uh, through their presence, through their processes, um, regulate and change the structure of the non-living components of the Earth. But if you change your habitat, your habitat now has new, you know, uh, ecological factors, and these ecological factors limit you in a way that you now need to adapt to them and evolution takes another course. So, in changing your own environment as a living being, your environment also uh, changes you or forces you to change yourself. Right. So constantly there's this, you know, co-evolutionary bond between living and non-living material on this planet, and this has been going on and on for millions and millions of years, where life on this planet has been acting as a regulatory mechanism of the non-living part of the planet. That's why oxygen levels are always the same, because there will always be organisms on this planet which will regulate. Uh, If there is too low of oxygen levels, plants will create more oxygen. You will have um, you, you will have algae bloom throughout the seas of the earth. Just right. so there can be more oxygen. If there's too much oxygen, then this will activate, let's say, a swamp, which you can see as an organ of Gaia. And that swamp will create bacteria, which creates a lot of um, gaseous nitrogen and and methane and ammonia, which regulate the, the oxygen levels to drop, you know. Right. So his whole book is about this concept, you know. It is very very um, science-heavy, very uh, environmental biology, very chemistry. But I didn't approach it from this that uh, perspective. So, uh, right off the bat, I want to tell your listeners, the Gaia hypothesis is a legit scientific biological hypothesis. Has nothing to do with the paranormal, has nothing to do with the woo. What... Right. Jordan and myself are doing here is appropriating right. a scientific concept to maybe explain an aspect of the paranormal, not explain per- the paranormal fully, because it's right. so complex. Yeah, but I don't think ma- anything could explain it fully. Right? Ex- exactly. So yeah. people maybe know me from the content I've been posting on Gaia Hypothesis and my guest appearance on another show in my own podcast talking about it but it is just me trying to say this is something we can use to maybe look at the paranormal from a different light and and maybe explain just an aspect of it maybe this is a one of the hundreds of factors which go into it yeah so how i approach it how i got to the guy hypothesis 
I was always interested in where does an organism begin and end? What is an organism? Because I am composed of millions of cells, and I am an organism, a multicellular one. But then you have an amoeba, which has only one cell. It's also an organism. Right. So <laughs> it is an organism, but I am an organism. We exist on different planes. Uh, I have millions of cells. Are all my cells organisms? Right. That's the stuff I think about. And then you go above the individual human, which is something not a lot of people are able to conceptualize because we always want to think of the human as the more advanced organism, and that's where we draw the line. But if you look at populations, let's say you look at a society, a human society, and there are these... Uh, there are these interactions being established between every human in that society. Isn't that the same as the uh, biochemical and physiological interactions between every cell in your body? Yeah. So your cells work in unison to keep you alive as a, you know, multicellular closed system. And you have these regulatory mechanisms in place to uh, keep all your cells in line so they may do their job, so they may work in unity, so you may exist. Right. But we, we within human society, have our own, you know, self-imposed systems of rules where we can function as a whole group so we can maintain this closed system, which is a society. Right. And this exists even beyond societies and populations. You have biocenoses or communities. These are populations of different species that live on the same habitat. And they are, in biology, uh, usually defined as interacting via food chains where they establish a circulation of matter and flow of energy. So, you know, you have a plant, and the plant eater eats the plant, and the meat eater eats that, and he dies, and then you have, you know, bacteria and fungi, which will reduce them to the basic elements, and this goes on and on and on in a circle. Yeah. So, isn't that uh, a kind of metabolism being established, only not between cells of a body, but between uh, entire species in an ecosystem? Yeah, yeah. And so on I'm... and so on, you know? So... Uh, that's how I approached it like if I'm an organism that is composed of millions of smaller organisms that are interconnected with these metabolic interactions let's say that maintain me as an organism then maybe there is something beyond myself and maybe I am the cell of something greater than myself and per the Gaia hypothesis I am and all of us are and everything that is living on this planet is essentially a building block of this giant living planet that we that we reside on yeah I mean most people have often saw seen the um the shot that's been done so many times where like cars are you know it's a shot of traffic right and the camera might zoom out and it shows them the cars going back and forth and is like slowly fades into cells right like mm -hmm. and 
the similarities there, right? Yeah, you can you can see um, traffic as the circulatory system, right? Outside exactly. of the body. Yeah. Um, so, I feel like that's like an easy concept for people <clears throat> for people to grasp, but like, it is if it's a theory that you take seriously, it's it affects everything, right? Like, it essentially tells you that you are not your own. Yeah. You belong to something much greater than yourself. Now, we that can go into religion and people believe. Essentially, in religion, people believe you are a part of God. When right. you die, your soul goes back to God. I don't know much about how... I mean, a lot of denominations of Christianity believe in different things, but essentially how I see it is your soul goes into this giant conglomeration of every soul and that conglomeration is God itself. Right. Only I, from a biological perspective, see it as I am a building block of something much greater than myself that is the planet, that is a living being. Right. Now, uh, this opens up the possibility, and this is where we go into the paranormal of what is a consciousness, you know? Right. You have your individual consciousness, but have you ever asked yourself, does every cell in your body have a consciousness of its own? Right. Because every cell in your body essentially is an organism for itself, but it specialized for a certain function, so it can work like a worker in a corporation. You know, you have a giant conglomerated corporation where everybody is specialized for a certain task, so the whole corporation may be sustained. Yeah. And you can see your body as a whole corporation. So, in a corporation, does every worker have a consciousness of their own, or are they (laughs) contributors of a giant collective consciousness? Right, to the corporate consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a super fascinating concept because obviously any theory that can be scaled up can be scaled down right exactly. and but I've never I've never really scaled it down before right to consider am I comprised of of separate conscious parts basically right so I've I've been having discussions with a lot of people about this while also you know talking about the paranormal and consciousness and stuff like that. I always use this analogy. So, so do you ever care how your individual cell in your body feels? Or do you only care about the accumulated um, net worth or whatever of every right. cell of your body? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Because I so, never, you know, you never think about yourself on that small a scale right yeah and when we talk about religion and god and stuff like that i mean this is a paranormal podcast sure but now now we're talking about you know grand cosmic concepts and we're talking about the planet earth being a living thing we're talking about consciousness we can go into religion and the concept of god yeah there's always this throughout religion a concept that God is aware of us all and that every single thing we do as individual beings is being monitored by God. But think about it. You are the God of every cell in your body yeah. and you do not even hear their whispers. Right. 
You are only concerned with the the hole. Yeah. And maybe every cell in your body is not even concerned with you. Maybe every cell in your body is just living its life not aware that you exist. Yeah. And maybe the planet, if it's a superorganism, is living its own life not aware of your individual existence. As you are not aware of its own existence. Because, I mean, you can see planet Earth from space and whatnot, but you do not conceptualize it as a living being. Because of course not. you are... You, you live an anthropocentric lifestyle. You can only conceptualize something that is humanoid. Right. Like, even when we conceptualize aliens, it's always a humanoid alien. Nobody yeah, ever says <laughs> they saw a giant jellyfish in outer space. Yeah. And, you know, when, when they do, everyone, especially in the ufology community, just writes it off. Like, well, no yeah. one's going to be interested in that. Um. No, but that that makes a lot of sense. And I think that we live those anthropocentric lifestyles purposefully. I think that's part of the design. Yeah, I think <laughs> there is a guy in purpose for that. Yeah, right, right. That allows us to fulfill our purpose, our contribution to exactly. Gaia, right? So that, that's where maybe where we go into the paranormal. Like, people are now thinking, what are these guys talking about? I, I'm <laughs> right. listening to campfire tales. I, there, there's this weird, creepy music in the background. Right. <laughs> <laughs> before, so, um, before we get into the paranormal, yeah. though, I had a thought. Because when, I was, when you were talking about um, being comprised, like each of your cells having their own consciousness, right? Because people often debate or they consider the influence of your cells your the microbiome of other of other things that live inside you mm -hmm. um, along with the influence of your experiences through life those are the things that are often considered when debating like free will versus determinism which is a big debate right so if you because that kind of goes backward against the idea of, well, we don't notice all the cells in us. But maybe we're not even... Maybe the only reason we're making the decisions we're making are because of those accumulations, right? The, like, the piling up of those consciousnesses, I guess, yeah. inside of us, right? Or that make us up. Oh, and the consciousnesses that we are a part of. That right. are bigger than us. Yeah. So uh, when I when we talk about self-regulatory mechanisms, like every cell in your body has uh, has these systems in place which regulate uh, how much they will divide and how they will function. And you know, you have hormones which would signal another part of your body what to do and when to do. You know, right? Metabolism. Yeah. Um, if your body has a self-regulatory mechanism, then surely if you are a part of a giant superorganism, that giant superorganism will have a regulatory mechanism of its own to keep you in place. Right. Um, now, when you're talking about anthropocentrism and uh, what we perceive to be free will, maybe those are adaptations that uh, serve a guy in purpose, but we think it serves our own purpose. Right. Because maybe your cell thinks what, what it does serves its own purpose. Wow, I am going to excrete this sludge that I don't need. 
so this other blood cell can give me sugar so I can eat, you know? Right. It just lives within its own domain. It's not aware <laughs> of anything else. Yeah. But it's not aware of this whole system built into place, so it may fulfill a certain destiny of keeping you alive. So you may right. be kept alive for some other destiny of something other than yourself and so on right. and so on. It's even larger and even larger and even larger. Yeah, it's like those Russian dolls which go one inside of each other, but think about it like in... Conceptualize it as an infinite loop. Right, just cosmic proportions. Yeah, like I, I like to think maybe atoms have whole universes inside of them, and maybe right. our whole universe is an atom of a giant cosmic amoeba or something. Right. But that's so outside our domain uh, and... We should not even think about these things because that's not our purpose. Right. Or maybe it is. Maybe we think about them and that's part of it, right? That's part of our purpose. And when you brought up uh, self-regulatory mechanisms, that's where we kind of step into the way we've impressed the Gaia hypothesis onto the paranormal, right? Yes, yes. So when we talk about... uh, consciousness free will our minds how much do you think our minds are our own if we are a part of uh, an organism that is greater than us right. it's I like mean, your your individual cell thinking that whatever it does in life is its own instead of for the purpose of you right like and, i'm choosing to deliver these sugars yeah yeah <laughs> so um what we Consciousness, human consciousness, individual consciousness. Our brains are a product of evolution, unless you're a creationist. Sure. Um, are a product of natural selection. We constantly say natural selection, but we forget the first word of that natural. It's not human selection. It is natural, and if it's natural selection, then it is regulated by nature and serves the purpose of nature. Yeah. So surely if uh, natural selection is this driving force that drives every organism, or what we perceive to be an organism, to adapt to its surroundings, they are adapting to their surroundings not to fulfill their own destiny but to fulfill the destiny of nature as a conglomerated whole right so um i constantly talk about on my show about Jungian archetypes and you've been bringing that up a few times on your own show yeah so you know these yeah. primordial symbols inside a collective unconsciousness why people see Bigfoot everywhere because there's this, you know, archetype of a wild man that every person on the planet shares. Right. That's why every culture has their own Bigfoot. They interpret this primordial symbol into something else based on cultural, historical context. Um, these archetypes, these uh, primordial symbols are something shared between each human so you may think it is something that is ingrained into our minds. If, and if it's ingrained or imprinted into our brains, then who imprinted it? If our brains 
are a product of natural selection, then any imprint in it is a product of natural selection. Yeah. So it's it's like computer programming or firmware, you know, of a device. Yeah. The ingredients programming, um, but put in place into the device by its creator. Right. But that's for like the purposes of its creator. Yeah, that's like following the following the money, right? In an investigation, right? You can like f- see the trail back. Like, if we do this because of natural selection, and natural selection serves the purpose of nature, then we do this to serve the purpose of nature. Exactly. Yeah. So Which surely is Gaia. That's the Gaia hypothesis. Right uh, like b- both of us, uh, I know you are into unification theory of the paranormal. So I and I am. So you and I think aliens, Bigfoot, Loch Ness monster, ghosts, whatever. All of that is essentially the same thing originating right. from the same source. Yes. But think about it. What what is the uh, factor that is uh, connecting all of that together? It is the human mind. Yes. In biology, we like to think like every organism that exists has a common ancestor, and you can you can connect these lineages all back to a common ancestor. Right. So the common ancestor of every paranormal occurrence and experience out there is the human. So the origin, let's say, lies in the human. Okay. And we all carry something within ourselves that every person in every culture has paranormal experiences, you know? So it is something ingrained into humanity. It's not ingrained into a specific culture or religion or historical time period, you know? Right. It's a part of our minds. Right. It's essential to the human condition. It's essential to the human condition. And if it's an essential part of the human condition, it was surely molded by natural selection and surely it uh, is there for some kind of natural Gaian purpose right if we believe the Gaia theory so Jacques Vallée you already know about him he yes. uh, has been on the trail of UFOs his whole life trying to uh, trying to determine what is the source of UFOs and what is connecting UFOs together and, you know, he started off with uh, mythology and folklore and these stories of fairies from the Middle Ages that all have the same elements like modern UFO folklore. But the more the decades have progressed, the more he has been focusing on this idea that the paranormal is a control mechanism. He doesn't... Maybe he knows about the Gaia hypothesis. He doesn't say it's a, of Gaia, of nature. But some co- kind of control mechanism mm-hmm. that is there to put on a show for us so we may maybe be put in place or we may learn something. Right. I don't know. To either stay away from it or to pursue it, whichever thing serves the intended purpose. Yeah. That probably varies from situation to situation, right? Um, you know, a sighting of... Uh, big bad monster in the forest might save a village of children right from going out and getting lost in the forest at the same time um sightings of ufos might encourage human beings to venture out into space 
Yeah, and I, I've been talking on my podcast about this, like, why did we see fairies in, in the Middle Ages, but now we see UFOs in the sky? Because right. in the Middle Ages, people were still uh, interpreting the forest as some kind of liminal space, you know? Some kind of realm of mystery. the unknown. Yeah, it's a mystery. Yeah. You're, you still have animals coming out of the forest and you need to battle them and you're afraid of it. Yeah. Um, so your mind generates or invokes these images of monsters, these primordial archetypal images. I don't know for what purpose. Is it for the purpose that we don't enter the forest or maybe it's for the purpose to entice us to explore further? Yeah. I don't know. Obviously, it's to entice us because we, we've been enticed a lot. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Obviously. But now we are being enticed by lights in the sky. Yeah. What is this unusual thing out there? Oh, we are stuck on this rock <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> revolving around the sun. But look, there's a light in the sky. Who knows what is right. out there? Maybe we should explore it. Go turn it into a parking lot, too. Yeah, and now, now we don't have forests, you know. We cover them in concrete. There are no liminal spaces except maybe a mountaintop or or um, the a ocean, ocean or mm-hmm. an abandoned building where we see yeah. ghosts and stuff. Right. So now we look up at the sky because it's a frontier that we have do- not dominated. Yeah, I like that concept. I've, I've heard you um, talk about that before, and it's... I, I love the idea that it evolved because we have, you know, it changed with us, right? Um, as we explored the forest and it fit, like it failed to fulfill that mysterious concept for us anymore, right? We, I think you can say for the most part, mankind has conquered the forests of Earth, right? Yeah. We've destroyed most of them. Um. And now we still in that drive for like exploration and mystery, it slowly transitioned to, like you said, the the only frontier left, which is up. And you can think about like, what is the guy in purpose of enticing a human to clear out a forest? Everybody wants to think of the forest as, oh, we need to save the forest eco-friendly, whatever. But we are talking about something much grander than us and a higher dimension of consciousness. I have this theory maybe Gaia or you know, the planet Earth, this higher consciousness that we are a part of is harnessing us as gateways to other dimensions because we are let's say the most intelligent beings and we have tapped into this other form of existence um I, I like to talk with you about, let's say, language and how language yeah. has evolved. You know, uh, people have conquered all the continents throughout history, and uh, from a few primordial languages, we have sprouted thousands of different languages and dialects. Because uh, lang- language is like a biological entity; it changes and evolves yeah. as it diverges and you know dominates different domains. But uh, unlike biological entities, it evolves much more rapidly because it is not constrained by physical and biological laws. It exists within 
an abstract dimension. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's just one aspect of this abstract dimension of existence that we have tapped into, and maybe the organism that we are forming is using us to create a new level of consciousness for itself. I, I like the the use of language as a metaphor too, because the way it has spread and and grown and changes over over time is the same way that sort of folklore moves has moved around the world and changed and taken different shapes. Those archetypes have taken on different faces for different cultures. Yeah, I mean, l- let's say the Rougarou of Louisiana. Yeah. You, you know about the Beast of Jovodon in right. France. But yeah. then the, the, the French people have, you know, settled in Louisiana and brought the werewolf with themselves. Not not physically, yeah. but within their own minds. Because wherever we go, we carry monsters with, us, with ourselves within our own heads. Yes. That's where the monsters come from. Right. Th- th- that's where the cryptozoologists fail, because they never turn back to the witness and ask, how do you feel about this and... Why right. did you see what you saw? I, yeah. I think the monster tells us more about uh, us than about the external world, you know? Sure. It tells yeah. us more about the witness who saw it. It is... There is this theory called co-creation in the paranormal world, and it's it was proposed by Greg Bishop. You may... Uh, here on other podcasts talking about it. Yeah, uh, I think he's writing a book now about it. So it's the theory that maybe there is some kind of paranormal force out there, or let's say uh, a control mechanism or something. But sure. it is interacting with us, and we are uh, not passive observers of the paranormal phenomena, but we are active participants in creating the f- shape and form of the phenomena. Right. So it is a reflective image of ourselves. Yeah. I've always liked that. I've always liked that idea. I I think I recently heard him discussing it on another podcast, and he sort of put it in a package that's very digestible. I've always kind of had that feeling that like um, that the the experiencer's perception of the phenomenon is just as vital to it as the actual source of the phenomenon right I never really um, had a way to conceptualize that but his his idea the co-creation theory is is awesome and I think it fulfills a lot of those questions that I've always had you, you know? already conceptualized it on your own show maybe you're not aware of it so you have talked before about this I think it was the uh, Aurora Texas UFO incident UFO yes. crash and uh, this was in the 19th century, and people saw an airship, and when the airship crashed, they saw a spaceman inside, and he had a journal of, of freaking stupid paper. papers. Yeah, paper. yes. yeah. So you have two things there. They saw an airship. Yeah. When today we see what... We, we don't even see flying saucers anymore. We see Tic Tacs. Yeah, um, and black triangles. Yeah, yeah. So, and you have this uh, concept of the paper. Like, think about it. If this is a spaceman, uh, a civilization much more technologically advanced than us, are they going to keep captain logs on, on paper? Right. 
Are they going to have an airship? Uh, Are are UFOs going to have porthole windows on them? And you know the Antonio Villas Boas abduction? Yes. The dude was was forced into the UFO by climbing a ladder. (laughs) Right. Come on. A ladder? (laughs) Yeah. Man. Um, Yeah, another one that always stands out to me is there was a sighting in on um oh it's in canada it's the same that the little island that um granger taylor disappeared from um anyway there's a sighting right around the time he disappeared actually where uh, two nurses saw a ufo hovering outside the hospital window right and they claimed that what they saw was they saw through the windows on the spacecraft they saw the the pilots right and that always stood out to me like windows you saw like like glass windows yeah and that that's the same with barney hill like he looked through his binoculars and saw on the ufo on the rim of the ufo these windows and through the windows he could see these beings and he saw one of the beings dressed in what a nazi uniform yeah, I yeah. think that that says more about him and his mental state than external forces. Yes. See, and some people might take this conversation as like, oh, you're discounting witnesses, but that's not at all what we're saying. We're not saying, like, they're made up. We're not saying... We're, we're saying something much more, much more magical. Yes. And it's something... People don't want to accept, but if you really think about it, it is much more wonderful than the plain old nuts and bolts approach. Yes. You yep. have the power of of formulating a phenomenon. Right. And of influencing it. And that you are linked somehow with this source and that you that you're working together to create this this experience. Right? Like, that's that's pretty damn mystical when you really think about it. So, recently, <laughs> recently I sent you that... Uh, I can't remember, can you? The, the experiments that were done in Canada to create a ghost. Oh, yeah. Yeah, um... Okay, it was the Philip experiment. Okay. So, I don't know much about this, but we have glossed over it a few times, me and you, while yeah. discussing. So the Philip experiment was this uh, experiment conducted in Canada, I believe, where they got a group of people to conceptualize a fictional ghost and then right. try to communicate with the ghost and concentrate their minds on, on uh, creating the image of this ghost before them. And then a lot of spooky stuff happened. Yeah. And the people generated a genuine experience, but everybody knew this was a fictional ghost with a fictional history that is not related to any person that ever lived. Right. And it's... So it's you some- mean like all ghosts? <laughs> yeah, it's it's something that's discussed a lot in circles who like to talk about uh, uh, parapsychology and psychic right. research. Yeah. Because uh, these people uh, generated poltergeist phenomena, but also brought the phenomena with themselves home. Right. After these experiments. Yeah, they went home and continued experiencing things, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, 
Just think about it, the power of the human mind to generate a paranormal experience and and maybe work with some outside factors to to influence the outside world in a way yeah. and conjure up dare we say a tulpa right yeah um and that brings me to another bonding point that we've kind of had over the last few months which is we both have like a sort of deep love and appreciation for hoaxers yeah yeah Right? And a lot of people in this community despise hoaxing. And I think it's... <clears throat> I think that's because... I mean, of course, especially people in like the cryptozoology field, the, the flesh and blood people are so desperate to be accepted by mainstream science that they just shun anything that's like... that's woo or that could be construed as, um, you know, making them look bad basically um, but I think another part of that is they, they people take hoaxing at its surface level they don't stop to consider the implications of a hoax over the course of decades and even centuries right because my, my love for hoaxing is <clears throat> because it inspires experiences with exactly people. Right, that's and, and this it does. This Phillips experiment was essentially a hoax. Yeah, they all knew this was a hoax. They were conducting a hoax, but generated something genuine. Now, this may uh, make people think of uh, spiritualism and seances, which yeah. were a big thing in the 19th century. And we all know that a lot of those people were hoaxers, those mediums who conducted seances, but. What if these were people who knew in order to spark something genuinely paranormal, you need to trick people into focusing their intent and their energy uh, to a certain point in time and space where they may be harnessed to generate a paranormal experience. But yeah. in order to you know get them there, you need to hoax. Yeah. So you'd organize this group of people and conduct a seance, and then you'd use these cheap tactics to play with their senses, to spark their emotions, to bring them to the mental state where they may be co collectively uh, harnessed for the materialization of something else. Yeah. See, and I think that happens, whether intentionally or not, but I love the idea of those late 19th century mediums I love the idea of them being in on it them understanding the process you know like that that this was purposeful I love that idea um, but I think it happens whether it's intentional or not like recently as you mentioned earlier you were on um, six degrees of John Keel yeah right and you discussed the Patterson Gimlin footage, um, <laughs> which you know this, th which we're going to talk about briefly. Okay, and it you know it might if this makes some people unsubscribe from the show. I apologize, but it's because I'm on the same page with you. I personally believe that the Patterson Gimlin footage was most likely a hoax. Yeah, but I think it's one of the most important hoaxes in the last hundred years. I think it 
it created so much phenomenon. You know, I could go even that far to say that it as a hoax is much more valuable than, say, some shitty video of a real Bigfoot, if it exists. Because it reached so many minds, and it sparked a whole mythology, and it it keeps people wondering. There are a lot of people now interested in Bigfoot because of the aftermath of the Patterson-Gimlin hoax. Yeah. And we, we both were interested in the concept of tulpas so we could even go there sure. and say people are are conjuring up tulpas of, of bigfoot yeah, all over because, the world yeah because they were influenced by this hoax yeah and i've <clears throat> i've listened to a hundred interviews with you know great people who are in the field who are like out there looking and they're writing books and they're contributing to all this culture this cultural phenomenon that is bigfoot right and one after another, they're asked the question, what got you into this? What was, you know, how did you come upon cryptozoology? What drew you in initially? That same question asked a hundred different ways by a hundred different hosts. Um, and the answer nine times out of ten is Patterson-Gimlin. And it, I mean, it's just... It, it dragged the concept of the Sasquatch into pop culture, into like the forefront of culture, right? And peop- yet people are offended when you suggest Patterson-Gimlin is a hoax because it's like black and white mentality. Like if Patterson-Gimlin is a hoax, then Bigfoot does not exist. And that yeah. that's unacceptable. Well, may- maybe Bigfoot does exist. And maybe this was a hoax. Yeah. And by the way, one, a video isn't proof of something existing, right? It just, it's not. Okay. There's a huge problem in the paranormal community. Everybody wants proof. And I want to say experiencers are not obligated to provide proof of their own subjective personal experiences. Uh, yeah, I would agree with that. It's like you you being peer pressured into providing proof of uh, of how you feel and what your life is like. Yeah. It's your it's something if co-creation theory is right, every every experiencer's experience is personally tailored and is their own. Right. And then yeah. you have researchers, you know, who who just Right on somebody's experience and cherry pick details and whatnot because they care about proof because they want to provide proof to their colleagues so they may dick measure each other essentially yeah. Yeah. using uh, appropriating experiences from other people that are yeah. their own. Yeah, I think there's a lot of confirmation bias that goes into those situations where. And that leads to the cherry picking, right? You have a lot of... You often cite the um, Betty Andreessen yeah. situation. That is an example, a great example of someone not doing that, right? The, yes, um, but if you if you read books from other authors... Right. Because like the one who did Hawkins. it correctly was... <laughs> yeah, yeah. So 
uh, for those who don't know, Betty Andreessen, I mean, if you're into alien abductions, it's probably something you're aware of. She was a woman who claimed to have been abducted by aliens, but her abduction scenario started off like a normal, usual abduction scenario, you know, surgery, medical procedures, blah, blah, blah. But then it went a whole other route, very religious, very es- esoteric experience. She yes. was transferred to another world and brought before a 15-foot-tall phoenix that exploded into flames and whatnot. Yeah. Um, and when you read about her account in other books from other alien abduction researchers, they never acknowledge the Phoenix Bird situation because they want to paint the picture that this was a false memory imprinted by the Greys into yeah. her head. But but the the Greys butt probing her, that's, you know, a totally real thing. Yeah. Which... <laughs> It's just a perfect example of them. They Before they even spoke with her, they decided that they know what an alien abduction is, what it consists of, and anything outside of that, they just use the implanted memory concept to yeah. dismiss it. I, I want to know how Bigfoot researchers explain uh, uh, Bigfoot uh, disappearing into portals and yeah. fairy lights and stuff like that. Yeah, and like Bigfoot being sighted um, controlling spook lights. There's so much of that. You know, there, there are cases of Bigfoot uh, with glowing eyes and green fur. Yeah. And then the Bigfoot researcher would say, okay, we're not gonna say that it was green. We're just not right. gonna acknowledge which color it was. Yeah, we'll just leave out the color. Yeah. Um, there's... I, I believe Kryptonaut Podcast covered it a long time ago, but there's... There's a Bigfoot sighting, I think... Uh, I'm pretty sure it happened in the Pacific Northwest. A lot of them do, but I'm pretty sure this one was. May have even been southwestern Canada. Um, but Bigfoot was actually... First, the people had a UFO sighting. Like, a pretty intense one. The light... They felt like the light saw them seeing it. It got bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and it kind of flashed over their house. And then soon after, they had a Bigfoot encounter, like less than 30 minutes later. They had a Bigfoot encounter, and they described it as, like, wearing one of those, like, bullet sashes. Mm-hmm. And, it, it like, it had, like, all these this weird imagery mixed in with it. And you never hear nuts and bolts people talk about that encounter. Oh, you, you know about the flannel man. Yes. And Bigfoot being spotted with a flannel shirt. Yeah. Um, in old times, people were seeing Bigfoot with pickaxes and stuff like that. Yep. Um, it's like the more time progressed, and the, one of the co-authors of Where the Footprints End was talking about this on a podcast. Like the more time progressed, like when you compare old-timey accounts of Bigfoot and more modern ones, the more time progresses, uh, the more Bigfoot looks more like an animal because in old times it was always more human-like and he was dressed and he had tools and stuff like that. Is that like um, the cultural and historical context maybe shaping the form of the phenomenon or is it maybe the influence of the Bigfoot researchers omitting details? Yeah, it, it could it could be that also. It could also we could be we could be noticing the slow transformation of the myth from wild man to to full ape yeah right and I, I had uh, a theory about this what if we are seeing bigfoot 
if there is a Gaian purpose to this, a natural purpose. Right. Maybe we are seeing Bigfoot because we need to um, treat it as a poster child to save the planet. Right, protect its habitat. Yeah, like right. the, the Mother Nature has been communicating to us via cute panda bears, we don't care. Then it has been communicating to us via alien abduction scenarios where they take us away and show us images of natural destruction and catastrophe, and we yeah. still don't care. So now, what if we... What if I show people Bigfoot? Like, they don't relate with a panda bear, but they may relate with something that is much more human. Right. Just, just like Barbara on Six Degrees said, she loves Star Trek, and in Star Trek, all the aliens are very, very humanoid because yes. there's drama and because you need to relate with the characters, and people relate with other humans. Right, because... It would be much harder to sell, a, you know, a romantic plot between the starship captain and some sort of like squid. tentacled squid in it, <laughs> right? Exactly. But yeah, I think because the environmentalist sort of um, message is so common in in alien in alien encounters, like I instantly think of the. Um, the Rua school, the, the, um, oh, what do Ariel. Yes. The aerial school. Yeah. I mean, that's hundred percent what the message was for them. Also, you know, all the contactees in the fifties yes. and George yep. Adamski and the space brothers, even, I mean, it's a hoax, but yeah, how much of it is a hoax and how much of it is, is this, uh, non-human consciousness, which is Gaia and the earth maybe whispering in, in his ear these messages. Right. Adamski was... That hoax was perpetrated by Gray Barker, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. So Adamski himself was a hoaxer and a scammer. Right. He was a charlatan. Charlatan. But so was Gray Barker. Yeah. <laughs> and so was Jim Mosley. They were best buds. And they're yeah. notorious in the UFO community for perpetrating hoaxes. Um, and they essentially hoaxed uh, George Adamski. I think they, they got a piece of paper from some government thing, whatever. Yeah. And they Barker just wrote a note on it, like, we support what you're doing, blah, 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 and sent it to Adamski. And then yeah. he, he was fl- uh, just flapping that around wherever he went. Yeah. <laughs> but it, 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 was, it was a bullshit letter concocted by them. Yeah. Now, when we're uh, at Gray Barker, so I'm going to ruin your podcast to your listeners because I know <laughs> men in black are, are a huge thing. Sure. So when we're talking about hoaxes, like people, I don't know if you got, if it, people are aware, but the men in black are a hoax. Yeah. Or they were originally. The whole men in black mythos was a hoax perpetrated by Gray Barker. Yeah. Uh, with Albert Bender. Now, Albert Bender probably believed in his claims. But also Albert Bender was suffering from seizures. And he'd see, you know, the this trio of men in black whenever he'd had a seizure. And Gray Barker was a charlatan and an editor of Saucerian Press. And uh, he first wrote about Albert Bender's men in black encounters and they knew too much about flying saucers that's mm-hmm. what most people attribute uh, 
as starting the Men in Black mythos until Albert Bender wrote his own book about his experiences, but it was edited by Gray Barker, so everything (laughs) went through Gray Barker, um, directly or indirectly. And now you have this whole mythos, and you have this whole media franchise around around this this idea that started off as a hoax. And that's that's another fantastic example of a hoax that inspired tons and tons of experiences. Exactly. Now, were these people conjuring tulpas of Men in Black? Right. Or did it open their mind to the ability? Did it, like, sort of prime their mind to co-create those experiences? Yeah. Right? Because it is much easier to visualize uh, a human dressed in a black suit than it is a monster. That's why ghosts are a very common phenomenon, because it's easier to conceptualize a humanoid form, but also a dead person. Right. Yeah, and you have, um, and you have that emotional connection. Exactly. Yeah. So it's easy picking. <laughs> yeah, I mean, mortality is something that human beings have and will always struggle with, right? It's and having that emotional connection to the the concept of the unknown, an afterlife, what happens around death, right? I think makes it much easier to connect. Or it would, because I should say, I don't think either of us are 100% sold on any of these theories, right? Yeah. They're all just possibilities. So a big a big part of the paranormal thing, problem, whatever, is the trickster element. Sure. And we can theorize all we want, but in the end, the paranormal is there to deceive us. Right. If you see a ghost of a person that you know existed in the 19th century and you know his name and blah 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 why do you assume that this projection that is being shown to you is that which you are perceiving right when there is always an element of trickery and deception why yeah. wouldn't a phenomenon deceive you by uh, by showing itself to you as something that you maybe already know Right, it's like it, it's like this idea. Like you're using a Ouija board, and then ben, uh, Benjamin Franklin is talking with you, and you're challenging him. Why, why do you assume that an otherworldly being would not lie to you? Right, uh, aliens it's... abduct you, tell you something. Why do you assume they're telling you the truth? Why do you <laughs> assume that they are from Zeta Reticuli? Right, I. And we were talking about this before the show, but like, I, I think I think it has to do with human humanity as a whole's inferiority complex. I think that when when people encounter something that they perceive as being above them or some elevated being, mm-hmm. there's an implicit trust. Exactly, and that's why this all ties back to Gaia hypothesis. So even on Six Degrees of John Keel, we went to this conclusion Uh, obviously we cannot uh, comprehend Gaia the planet as a living being uh, this giant amoeba of conglomerated all life on earth this 
blob of life being a, an entity that we are a part of. So maybe Gaia communicates to us uh, masquerading as these things that we do trust and that we do comprehend right. as higher beings. An alien or uh, the Virgin Mary. Right. You know, like a lot of these... I mean, it's uh, part of UFO folklore, a lot of these visitations of the Virgin Mary and the Fatima incident. Yeah. Um, maybe this higher consciousness is communicating uh, to us, implementing these symbolic entities that we maybe open ourselves more to or maybe we trust yeah. more. Maybe that implicit trust is like is all a part of the plan, right? It's like putting up a puppet show to children. Yeah, absolutely. And to have a good puppet show or, or just using action figure, figures, you need to play with these archetypes. The archetype of the hero, the archetype of the villain and the king yeah. and, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, that makes that makes perfect sense. I don't... I think... Um, and I know it's going to annoy you because you hate when I make this comparison, but... Mm-hmm. That I mean, it sounds like God has a plan. Right? It doesn't annoy me because what you define as God, I define as something. Okay, so I've been saying my whole life I'm an atheist. Sure. And now, like in the paranormal community, when I say that, people tell me, oh, you're a debunker and you're a skeptic and you're this and you're that. And I'm like, doesn't atheist mean just not believing in God? Not all this no. other stuff. Yeah. Now, the more I think about it, I'm not opposed to the idea of a God. I'm opposed to the idea of a humanoid god. Sure. That's what yeah. annoys me. The idea God created humans in his own image. Yeah. Uh, maybe God is a giant blob in the universe. Maybe, sure. Maybe it is the uh, primordial soup of the cosmos. And it does not have a face. It does not have anything we can comprehend as a, a part of a living being. Sure. And it's not our place to even comprehend it, as it is not your cell's place to comprehend you or the planet you live on. Right. No. So maybe as... So our cells being a part of us, and we... Our role as cells in Gaia, maybe Gaia is a cell in something even larger that's a cell in something yeah. even larger. And maybe way down the line of that... There is a source. Maybe. <laughs> maybe, right? Do you really it's always, think, of course, it's maybe. Do you really think, like, uh, there are only the subatomic atoms, uh, subatomic particles that we are able to prove exist and that nothing exists that is uh, much below that. smaller or below that? Right, sure. Like, an atom is cre- composed of electrons, neutrons, and protons, and they're composed of glucons glutons or whatever yeah. and that's it well no it's just that we are blind to things that yeah. are mu- much far below us and much far above us and I see it all as just an infinity loop of beings composing beings a never ending sure. hierarchy and where you are on this wheel or ladder or whatever you only have a certain radius where you can comprehend existence. Right. right. The same way that we can only see a certain part of light waves, right? Yeah. 
Like, we have a range. We have a range of sound that we can perceive. We have a range of, of light that we can perceive. And maybe we have a range of this, like, cosmic scale that is available to us, and that's the only parts of it that we're ever supposed to comprehend. Yeah, I mean, anthropocentrism is a powerful thing. Yes. Even science is is victim of anthropocentrism. Sure. Everything Biology. You do, uh, I always say nature and science are different things. Nature is reality. Nature is a monolith. You can't change it. But science is our systematical observation of nature and categorization of it. It is a human construct. Sure. That serves a human purpose. It does not. Yeah, serve nature doesn't rely purpose. on science. Exactly. Like if we if we go extinct and there is no more science, nature keeps existing yeah, regardless. Yeah, of course. Yep. If like, if we perceive it or not. Yeah. Know? I mean, salamanders are going to keep being salamanders whether we have them written down in a book somewhere or not. Oh yeah, but then there yeah. is the question: like, it does if a tree falls in the woods and there's nobody to hear it, did it happen? Sure. Uh, again, anthropocentrism. Maybe uh, different beings have uh, different perceptions of reality and different uh, ethers that exist between them. Um, on six degrees, I talked about like these communities where in forests every tree is interconnected via this system of underground fungi. Right, the- yeah. mycelial network or a mycelial right. network of fungi and yeah. it's like a neural network we are not a part of it we do not speak its language trees are communicating with each other and we are not aware of it do trees we can't even then... really see most of it right yeah now do do trees have uh, a society and do trees have a language and do trees have folklore of their sure. own <laughs> Yeah, I, I liked that. I liked that part. Because it, on its face, it seems like such a silly concept, right? But if they can communi- if they can communicate at even the most rudimentary level... Rudimentary per our standards. Right, right. Those are the only standards I have. So, <laughs> um, but who are we to say that, that that isn't extrapolated, right? That, like, they don't... That their communication isn't so much deeper than we can comprehend, right? And maybe folklore to a you know a group of redwoods, you know, it, maybe it doesn't look like you know stories about spook lights in the West Virginian hills, right? It's a completely alien concept. Exactly. Yeah. Like they don't have a nervous system. Right. Plants. I know from college, like plants do have some kinds of senses but it's not like with animals like their anatomy is completely different than anything you can comprehend in yeah. animal anatomy down to the cellular level yeah they they communicate via chemical cues yeah. i think they can even so when a root um starts forming from from a seed uh, the cells in the root have this uh structure in them that's like a tiny little grain of sand and it goes down per gravity you know that's how the root senses what's up and what's down that's how the root knows that it needs to go downwards and not upward 
<laughs> yeah, it's it's not it's something we can't comprehend as as living as animal beings. Yeah. Then you have like animals who can sense magnetism and electrical signals and stuff like that. Sure. We yeah. are we are limited by our sensory organs. Sure. As every living thing is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Just like, uh, you know, a eucalyptus tree would not be very good at using a cell phone. Yeah. We can't understand that tiny little sensor in a cell telling the root to grow down instead of and, up. And also, like, uh, living beings live in different perceptions of time. Yeah. Like, an amoeba that lives for a few days has a different perception of time than we who live on average 70, 80 years than, yeah. say, a tree that can live for centuries than, say, a Gaia or a planet right. that can live for eons. Right. Yeah. So something that so is just... significant to us in our perception of time is not very significant to, let's say, a Gaian entity that exists in millions of years and eons. Right. It only senses changes uh, on itself in eons. Now, we can go the route of pollution and how much we fucked up the planet exponentially. But I think there's a purpose to that, even. (laughs) Sure. I I agree. I like that you can see see the the idea of um, perception of time the differences in perception of time even within the human race you can see that because as someone who has raised children Mm -hmm. someone who is five years old can have their entire life ruined by like a dropped ice cream cone yeah right whereas someone who has lived 50 years drops an ice cream cone and goes well i guess i'm not eating that ice cream cone right and it like your perception of events are so impacted by your perception of time and how much of it you have and how much of it you've lived. So that huge difference between a 50-year-old human being and a 5-year-old human being, extrapolate that to some to an entity that lives for millennia. Yeah. Right? That's If you've ever felt small before, <laughs> now's the time to feel small. I mean, like, <laughs> it's comforting why it people love love cryptids and cryptozoology. It's comforting to think, wow, there is a Bigfoot out there and he's fluffy and nice. Right. But uh, no, nobody wants to ask the big questions. Why is there a Bigfoot yeah. uh, perceived out there, but there is no physical evidence of it? And why is it appearing... To every uh, person in every culture uh, on the planet. And why have people been seeing it for centuries? And what about ourselves, you know? Does it say? Yeah. Does it say? I personally, I find the Gaia theory beautiful and comforting. And I love the idea of being a part of something like that. And I know a lot of people, people debate you know, free will, determinism, all that stuff. But I, I've, I'm a person who's always found determinism to be comforting. The idea that, like, you're going to do what you're going to do. Like, it's 
not necessarily that it's set, but that you're given parameters to exist within. You know, why, why it comforts me, maybe I have different a different viewpoint. It comforts me in the sense that I feel... I don't want to say nothing matters. It's not nihilism. It's like, however I screw up something, it is not as impactful. Yes. Because I am a part of a greater whole. And also, I am, uh, in a way, a creator of the universe because I am a molecule of the cosmos. Yeah. So I am a part of the whole universe and I am creating it on a small scale. Yeah. So even if you're a loser, at least it can comfort you with the idea, wow, I am a molecule of the cosmos. Yeah, that's it. That's it. That's the perfect cat poster to end the episode on. (laughs) (laughs) Dude, thank you so much for doing this. No problem, man. I knew having you back on was going to be like even better than the first time. I am now I'm just looking forward to the third time. <laughs> oh man, what are we even going to talk about? So I yeah. I think a lot of people will find this the weirdest episode you ever made. I'm totally okay with that. Mm. I I hope it like gives the audience a little more insight into like where I'm coming from as a host of the show and I hope it like I hope we sparked some curiosity and maybe some people will look into it like this. Maybe some people who only ever considered that Bigfoot might be a bipedal ape in the forest. Maybe we open their mind a little bit and Yeah, I mean, I mean the paranormal community is like containing itself within a bubble. Sometimes yeah. you need to burst the bubble and open up uh, their their horizons to the complexity of the cosmos. Yeah. And think about how vast the universe is, and then, with that knowledge, go back to the small-scale thing of what is a Bigfoot, and how meaningful is that? Yeah. Yeah. So, what we talk about in the third episode, I think, (laughs) depends greatly on who we are in six months. (laughs) Oh, yeah. A lot has changed since since the last time we we recorded. So, we'll see. Right? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you, thank you, thank you. From the bottom of our weird, possibly alien, maybe ghostly, probably cryptid hearts for listening. We absolutely love having the chance to discuss all these wild creatures and events every week, and it's your continued attention that allows us to carry on. And if you want more, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash campfire tales of the strange and unsettling it's there you will find bonus content behind the scenes we're just keeping up on our day to day and maybe some swag along the way it is our way to show thanks for your support and do everything we can to provide you with as much content as possible again that's patreon.com forward slash campfire tales of the strange and unsettling With that said, we want to get to know each and every one of you, so please come and check us out on all the socials. At campfire.tales.podcast on Instagram and Facebook, at campfire.totsau on Twitter, and you can also visit our website at campfirepodcastnetwork.com. If you love the show, please rate and review it. 
It's what truly helps us continue bringing your weekly dose of the strange and unsettling. And lastly, we do have our merch store. You can find the link available on all of our social media or via our link tree. Show your support. Buy a shirt. Buy a sticker. Buy a blanket. Buy a pillow. Anything that you want to rep Campfire Tales of the Strange and Unsettling. And that's it. Until next time, I'm Ryan. I'm Jordan. And remember, campers, stay weird and trust in the unknown. unknown.